Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello. Welcome, everybody, to this Unheard Live event. We are gathered almost like kind of dissenters in some kind of time of crisis, but we're not actually going to plot uh, the overthrow of anything here. We are here to discuss and to find some kind of uh, truth to some what we think are quite important questions. Our topic today is free speech in the arts. Do we currently enjoy free speech in the arts? Are people able to have a diverse view of political or cultural or societal opinions? Or is something else going on? If something else is going on, why does that matter? Is it just that it might negatively affect the quality of films and art and music and TV and books? Or is there something more important that might happen? Is it the whole sense of who we are as a society that is perhaps being altered by the kind of constraints on free speech and freedom of thoughts? We think it's a really important question, and I'm so delighted that we have this amazing panel here. Uh, Winston Marshall, Jessica DeWalls, and Sarah Dytum. Jess DeWalls is a artist. Um, she has really made embroidery a serious visual art. Um, the enfant terrible of the embroidery world. Um, and her work that was until very recently available in the Royal Academy shop, one of the many places where she has exhibited, uh, was removed. It was pulled from the shelves after a uh, controversy that she was involved in, um, or she expressed her views on the vexed trans uh, question. Uh, so that has actually um, it led to the work being pulled, and as we're no doubt going to hear, uh, it then got restored. So that's a very recent and powerful example of um, what happens if you don't um, go along with the prevailing views. Uh, Winston Marshall, sitting here in the green shirt, um, was until very recently one quarter of Mumford & Sons, um, the huge global band. Um, that you know, multiple platinum award-winning albums lined on top of each other, um, continuing to be referred to accurately as one of the biggest bands in the world. Um, their most recent world tour filled the hugest stadiums in cities around the world. Um, and he has, last month, resigned. Uh, he has removed himself from the band after another controversy that uh, also began on Twitter. 
Um, and so I look forward to hearing from him what his experiences are and what he has learned from that. Um, and Sarah Dytum um, is a unheard contributor, I'm delighted to say, uh, a writer, a critic, um, who's also had her own run-ins uh, in this time in the publishing world. So we, we're hearing from different parts of the creative world here. So I really look forward to hearing what she has to say uh, as well. So Jess, I'm gonna start with you. Sure. You're next to me, you're in the hot seat. So Fine. let's just, for those people who don't know what happened, let's give a kind of sense of what happened. So you, you produced these beautiful floral patches. Uh, patches. I nearly called them stickers, I patches, <laughs> um, which have been selling well in the Royal Academy shop. Yeah. Something happened, tell us what it was. Right, so I've been selling them there, or they've been selling them rather, they've been one of my wholesale clients um, for more than a year now. And um, thanks to a blog that I wrote on the whole gender identity situation that is getting more and more out of hand, in my opinion. Uh, I wrote that in 2019, and ever since, people have been trying to hijack my work, get it literally removed from places, um, attack people who would associate with me, who would give me a platform. And uh, so with the Royal Academy, I kept that rather quiet because I was a bit worried that the same thing might happen. When they approached me and asked if they can you know, stock my, my work in their shop. And, and so they did. I kept it quiet up until last month when I didn't think it through and posted on my Patreon that I've just dropped off the last uh, restock for the Real Academy. And clearly there has to be somebody on my Patreon who subscribes to me, so pays a monthly fee to, to basically spy on me, essentially, because that was the only place where I said it, um, kind of publicly. Um, and a day later, it started to spiral. So it started to be within the embroidery community. People started posting about this, unbeknownst to me, because I had blocked most of those people, and then um, spiraled as in somebody had taken a screenshot of my website, tagging all all the places that do stock my my patches uh, in there, saying, "How can you how can you stock this transphobe? Um, uh, do you have no self-respect?" Blah blah blah, uh, and then basically encouraging their followers to um, not just pile onto me because, well, I block most of the people, but also to complain to those places that stock my work. So it's like an organized campaign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it has been for two years, like literally, I just didn't think about this because yeah, I just didn't think when I posted it, I forgot that I had posted it already. It was a friend retrospectively who pointed out that that was the place because I couldn't work it out. I was like, how did they find out about this now? This ha They have been there for a year, why now? And then she's like, oh, you did say it on Patreon. Right. Well, I did. And literally the timeline is just perfect. So it just makes sense. And then within a day, I got an email from the Royal Academy saying, um, we're so sorry. And it was actually quite a polite email at the point, at, at the time, um, saying, we're so sorry. Um, we've been made aware. We've, we've had eight complaints against you saying that, you know, there's an issue with transphobia, this, that, and the other. We're going to have to investigate. And we're so sorry, you know. So I wrote back. I was quite uh, flustered. So the issue is that people have been complaining on Twitter at on, this point, on, on social media. 
On, well, I mean, most of my stuff happens on Instagram, but yeah. the, so this happened through Instagram. The orchestrated campaign was through right. Instagram. That's sort of my main space where I share my work because it's visual art. So it's always been more of my uh, stomping ground, if mm -hmm. you will. And so that's where it started. That's where people were encouraged. But there was particularly one embroiderer in London who has like 17,000 followers who, who went on a rant for a day on her stories, going this transphobic, you know, trash, like lots and lots of name callings. Um, and people started sending me these messages because it completely went past me because blocked her literally a year and a half ago because it's not the first time she's done it. It's the like third time she's done it. And so wasn't aware of it until my friend went in her stories because she was one of my stockists and she got tagged as well. And so she she uh, went online saying, listen, uh, this is my friend. If you don't agree with her, fine, but leave her alone. And it's like, what the, what's going on? So this then reaches the Royal Academy. Reaches, okay. they get in touch with me, then say they need to investigate it. Um, the eight complaints, then I... Uh, Do you have any sense of how it reaches them? Is it... The, oh, they is email them. I see. Okay. So those people email them, eight people email them. Yeah, so this this was not, I mean, there were people posting underneath their completely unrelated posts on social media, but this was specifically email. Um, so from what the woman that uh, wrote to me said, she said it was eight emails that we got uh, people complaining and we need to investigate. So uh, I responded because she said the Royal Academy stands with the LGBTQ community. So I responded, so do I, this isn't that. This is a concerted effort to uh, get my work removed. This isn't the first time. I know who these people are. This is very specific. I can bring you in excess of eight people telling you what my views are. They're out in the open. They've been out in the open for two years. If you want to read my blog, here's my blog. Um, um, but please let's not drag this into the public because nobody's served by that. We're not going to figure anything out about this. Just let's not do that. And, um, and then I didn't hear anything from them. And that woman kept ranting. In the meantime, lots more people in America also, like from the embroidery community, got riled up. Uh, it just got really vicious again, once again. So I went to the police uh, to see if, if there's anything to, to, to stop them, because it just it drains mm. your resources. Um, so how did they pull it from the store? Did they let they, you know what happened? No, they didn't. So yeah. so. When I came back from the police, slightly deflated because they didn't really, they couldn't really help me. Um, I went home and then I found out through social media that they had dropped me <laughs> on their social media. So instead of emailing me back or responding in any way to my, my plea to not drag this into the open, they thanked uh, the, the people that pointed out my discretions. They didn't name me, but at that point it had become such a... A big thing that everybody knew <laughs> they were talking about anyway. Um, they will no longer stock this transphobic artist and um, yeah, and thanking people and, and that was that. And it then became a huge news story. It was covered on all the major channels yeah. in all the newspapers. Yeah. And what happened then? And then they apologized. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, so like about a week later, I mean, they first went into complete, complete uh, bunker scenario, uh, apparently unheard of. Um, they they literally, the press office did not respond to any request for uh, almost a week. Like, people tried to call them. I think I was one of the last people to actually speak to them um, when they were very flustered about, oh, this, this, it looks like it's going mainstream. And I said, yes, it is. <laughs> What's interesting then is that they retracted it. I they mean, did. is your work now back in it's the shop? Back in the, it, it, they've already restocked because it sold out within a week, yes. <laughs> Yeah, so we've got to hear about this because I, I, I love this ending. 
Yeah. Um, there's a message on your website at the moment saying, yeah. uh, due to a huge volume of orders, uh, we're not able to fulfill all requests. Yeah. What's happened to your... Yeah, so oh. as soon as I, I posted this online, I, I just took a screenshot of what they posted to their followers saying we no longer stock this. I posted that on my Twitter saying that's where we're at. And then I put my phone to the side, went to bed because it was just another of those incidences. And then I woke up to like just a whole inbox full of uh, journalists. And, and so then this week unfolded. And within that week already, people just went... <laughs> on my online shop and just bought everything they could. And like, yeah, I basically sold out of all my original artworks and then all my merchandise has just been gone on infinity because it just kept selling out, selling out. And I was like, listen, I'm gonna put it on, I'm gonna reorder, um, but this may take a while. And I think it's, yeah, some sometimes this week we might be on the current. <laughs> Right. order from last month. Yeah, so it's completely backfired. So actually, it's interesting to start with you because your story, in a way, has a happy ending. Yeah. Um, and actually, you know, because quite often what when this topic is discussed, people mm. say, oh, you know, so-called cancel culture doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, you know, you haven't been cancelled. You have, if anything, you, you have flourished as, uh, a, as a result of this. Yeah. What would you of say this, to that? I've been thoroughly cancelled for two years like this is because it's become mainstream and the backlash was so great uh, I hadn't even thought about it when I posted this on Twitter because for me it was just another of those incidences now I've been thoroughly cancelled I lost my place of work in Soho Theatre uh, right after like two months after I um, posted my blog I've had uh, collaborations hijacked to the extent that I had to distance myself from those people to save them in a way. Uh, and and then I stopped working with anyone altogether, even people that sort of offered me um, collaborations. And I couldn't do it be because I was worried that they would have the same fate. So, so no, this was two years of constant cancellation, you know, ending in this. Which so, is lovely, but I mean, they've definitely been successful. And I, I mean, they've even been successful with this. And if it wouldn't have been such a high profile place, mm. I don't know if it would, you, you know, that that would have been the outcome. And your reaction was, was very strong in mm. the beginning. Let, I, I want to come back to that. Sure. Um, let's hear a little bit from Winston. So this was also in the last few months. Um, a similar story in a way, but also quite a different story. So you, you posted a tweet about a book that you liked by somebody called Andy No, This caused a kind of Twitter storm. Uh, lots of people were very upset about it. Uh, what happened there? I'd been posting books uh, that I'd been reading through the pandemic had been sort of a theme of my uh, social media, although I'd say I had very few followers. So um, it was kind of remarkable, actually, that this tweet blew up at all. Um, and I think in March, tweeted about the book, which is a book that documents um, far-left extremism in mainly in Portland and Seattle um, in the States. So very niche uh, topic, um, certainly for a Londoner. Um, and um, the, uh, I called the book Important and the Author Brave. Um, important because I, I, as far as I saw it, it was the only book on the topic or I, I think it might still be, there might be one or two others. And uh, I thought he was brave because he's in, you know, risked endangering himself to report on the, on the topic. Um, and- So were you, you were surprised by yeah. the reaction? You, before Absolutely. posting that tweet, you didn't think this could be trouble? No way. 
<laughs> it was just completely bizarre. I, I couldn't, it was unfathomable. Well, I mean, with hindsight, one sees now, oh yeah, okay, so it turns out Antifa and far-left extremism is one of those hot-button issues, but I, I didn't, uh, I certainly wouldn't have done it if, if uh, or maybe would I, I don't think I'd have done it um, if I thought it, this could happen. No, I definitely wouldn't have done it. I'd much rather be in a rock and roll band um, than this. <laughs> Lovely as this is. So did you have the sense that this was like a campaign? Was there, were there people looking for an opportunity to get you or do you think it happened organically? So I, um, I've since learned a bit more. Like, so one poll I saw, um, is that Antifa have a 5% approval rating in the States, right? So that is just the very extreme. And um, so perhaps similarly, you have extreme activists who then, um, uh, you know, pile on, and they pile on not just on Twitter, they, you know, they change my Wikipedia page to say fascist. Um, they then go for your friends, similar sort of, um, uh, behavior and it gets uh, quite scary particularly when your friends uh, don't know what's going on and it seems like if they don't know the topic it's a it's a topic that it's h quite hard to understand perhaps given that it's so niche um, and uh, so the kind of word game was that word game is because it was against antifa anti-fascist yeah therefore two negatives make a positive it must quite. be pro-fascist exactly. that was sort of the argument wasn't it apparently um uh and so then uh issued an ap apology um for the tweet and came off social media and Can we just hear a bit more about that so this huge thing is happening it's blowing up oh, i guess all the band are getting calls everybody's upset and yeah then there's like threats so radio stations saying they're not going to play the band. M several artists, some, some of whom we've worked with, um, libelously accusing me of endorsing fascism. Um, and uh, so um, it, was, it wasn't just activists. It was then, it felt like the music industry more widely. So uh, at that point, what are you thinking? Are you, what are you worried for? It must be quite... Well, I, uh, my priority in that moment is my bandmates and who are, um, you know, my best friends. And um, not only on a personal level, but also as well as myself, they've worked incredibly hard to get the band where it, where it is. And even, you know, it's, a bands are a bit of a miracle. You know, the stars have to align for them to succeed. So it's not just hard work. It's just it was, you know, incredibly... Uh, uh, fortunate to be in a band that's successful, uh, particularly if that's what you love and that's what you want to do. Um, and so I wanted to protect, I, I respected that in them and I wanted to protect them. And I was also open to the fact that um, perhaps I didn't know there was something I wasn't seeing. Perhaps there was something about the author or the book that I didn't um, uh, see. I mean, thinking back, I, I wouldn't say I agreed with everything in the book, but there's nothing in the book that's bloody fascist or, or anything close to that. But you sort of doubt yourself in the midst of the maelstrom. Yeah, you absolutely doubt. If everyone is challenging you, the reasonable thing to do is go, OK, well, maybe I'm wrong. Like, may, maybe there's something here I don't see. I think, well, that's how I responded anyway. Um, so 
So do you, you, was it your idea to do this apology? Was it because, you know, when, when big bands are involved, there's always conspiracy theories. It's PR agents and it's all, you know. I made happen? the apology, so I'll take responsibility for it. Um, I uh, then, uh, over the time after that, um, and initially I was like, OK, I've done the right thing. Can I read out some of the apologies? that reasonable. I've got it here, just so people know. So you said, you said, over the past few days, I've come to better understand the pain caused by the book I endorsed. I have offended not only a lot of people I don't know, but also those closest to me, including my bandmates. And for that, I am truly sorry. As a result of my actions, I'm taking time away to examine my blind spots. For now, please know that I realize how my endorsements have the potential to be viewed as approvals of hateful, divisive behavior. I apologize, as this was not at all my intention. So the, the language there is quite... You know, it's 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 strikingly um, apologetic, um, and it and it has that sort of has the tone of kind of being educated, which is quite often what you hear in these sort of scenarios. Do you, when I read that back to you, what do you now think? I think that it it wasn't insincere when I made it. I was it was a an emotionally. Um, uh, it wasn't emotionally sober weekend, and um, and you know I had offended a lot of people, uh, and uh, so although I I don't agree with it now um, uh, because I don't think the book is offensive, uh, but um, uh, so you don't do you do you take back that apology? Well, retract it. I. Uh, came to the conclusion after uh, over a, a few months really digging into it and looking at that my original tweet where I called the uh, journalist brave and um, I uh, said the book was important I I think that's a perfectly reasonable tweet and um, and over a period of time particularly actually in that period the journalist was attacked again um, my conscience was really, really ill at ease, and um, I felt like <clears throat> I'd been participating in a lie. Not that that was specifically a lie, but after a while, I felt that way. And um, furthermore, I thought, well, that apology now is to is to my name. So whatever work I do, whatever songs I write in the future, whatever I write, like if I write prose or anything whatever I create, I feel like that that might take away from that work a little bit because, you know, art or creation is, is the pursuit of truth. And, and, to, and that's a wavering, or it wasn't when I made it, but it felt over a period of time that, that I can't have that on my record. So um, you felt, what, that they, these were big forces that, and had somehow in the midst of that moment had brought you to do this thing that you then regretted? Is that... Uh, well, yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, so let's fast forward a bit to more recently. So this was a, this this happened earlier in the year, and then you were thinking about it, um, and then you came up with a, a new statement a couple of months later. I did, and um, decided the only way to square my conscience um, and deal with the situation uh, truthfully for myself was to leave the band um, because inevitably I would get 
um, uh, uh, you know how um, Jester spoke about um, people she'd collaborated with and, and not wanting them to have the same experience. Uh, I totally relate to that because I, I don't want them to have that experience. And I felt by removing myself, um, I I, uh, I could st st uh, stand by what I thought was true without them feeling the consequences. So you then you wrote a, a piece, you put it up on Medium. It's mm -hmm. been read by around about a million people, I understand. Not quite. Uh, Not quite, yeah. something in that order. Um, so it really obviously connected and it was a huge news story when you decided to leave this huge band. Oh, uh, well, I, I, I've been thinking about what the patterns are a little bit in preparation for this. And on the weekend of it, what you, I sort of see it as a three-act play. So you have um, uh, Invisible Tripwire, Crossed, um, very loud minority of uh, Twitter users uh, blow it into a huge thing. That's one thing. Then you have the press, Act 2, the press, who uh, report on what those people are saying. So not the truth, but what is what those loud activists are uh, accusing the protagonist of. And then, so then you get the uh, newspaper articles that s say, you know, ridiculous things like, I mean, even to call me right wing, it's, I, I don't, it's not even, I don't identify as right wing at all. Um, uh, and um, I mean, that's, that's one of the better accusations, I mean, fascism and all this ludicrous nonsense. Um, but then, so the papers, that's how they report that. So then that, that there's a much bigger reach then with the papers. So that's your reputation going out to a lot of people. Most people don't care about the issue. They'll just see the headlines or they'll just get some negative vibe and they'll think, stay away from him. And it's sort of online. It's sort of like you, you have an online CV, don't you? So it, um, uh, that's got kind of on your record. And then um, act three is that you know the people uh, so trying to trying to uh, n not well before that is, is then trying to work, carry on working uh, in the industry with that on your record right. is very very difficult. So did you feel it would have been had you just I mean that's kind of the interesting question with these two examples isn't it because what the way Jess reacted and I remember we, we did an interview you were basically like f off I don't, I'm not interested um, say what you like you know, I, I know what I believe, so. But also, I didn't get the tripwire. Like, I walked into this eyes wide open when I wrote the blog that I wrote. So this is different because I think you didn't see it coming and I saw it coming. I didn't think it would be as horrible as it ended up being, but I knew what I was getting into and I was prepared to go, well, if I want to make art, I'm going to have to say this because there's no point otherwise. Otherwise, I can just make decorative, nice little needle points. Mm. And that's it. And that, that, for that, I've, you know, it's, it's different, I think, in that respect. I, didn't, I wasn't surprised by it mm. anymore, sadly. But Winston, <laughs> do you, sort of hearing what's happened to Jess, do you, does part of you wish that you had been a bit more like, F off since the beginning? Uh, well, the circumstances happened? are too different. Yeah. Uh, firstly, I was part of a band, so mm. we, shared uh, a public identity, we were a unity with, uh, in terms of being public facing. And um, furthermore, the, the, the name of the, of the band was the, the singer's 
surname, so he w it kind of just re it was p looked particularly bad for him, which is very unfair. Um, uh, so I do think that's mm. quite different now mm. as a as a, a sort of in sole agent. Mm. I suppose I think I would act different. Well, I definitely would act differently now. So now you've left. You're you're here. You can say what you like. Does it feel different? I mean, is it? Does it? Do you feel like a liberated person? Uh, part part partly. Um, I feel liberated in the sense that um, I'm liberated from from the uh, feeling, uh, uh, the ill conscience I was feeling for many months. Um, I I now that the pub there there was a period of a couple of weeks where there was a lot of um, public attention, particularly from the press, where I which which meant that I was quite. Anxious and nervous, that, um, but now I feel like that that's past. Things have calmed, calmed a little bit. I feel a bit better. So do you feel now you can say what you like? Do you feel like in this forum? Okay, it's not. We're not actually just in a pub. There are lights and there's an audience. How how free? Do you have free speech now? I've become very aware of, uh, in a way I hadn't before, um, of uh, PR. So, um, and ironically now, because now that I'm not, I'm fun employed, um, <laughs> uh, where it doesn't really uh, matter as much. But I, so I'd be, I would be uh, careful publicly speaking to make sure I say what I really think. Mm. Um, uh, and um, because uh, I, think, I think words are important. And um, so in that sense, I'm, I want to be careful that I'm still speaking the truth or what I understand to be the truth. So perhaps more than I was before. Mm. Um, but I feel a freedom within that as well. So it's not quite yes or no. Okay, Sarah, let's bring you in here. Um, so you actually, I've, I've got to start with this because it was so <laughs> intriguing. Um, you actually showed me a message that you got, I think just in the last couple of days. Yes. Um, and we won't go into the details of exactly what it was about. But may I read an extract? Yes. <laughs> okay, so this is from an anonymous person, and I'll slightly edit it to, to make sure that it's not identifiable. Uh, this is a tough email to write. Um, I read this uh, work last night with a great deal of interest and pleasure. It's a fascinating topic, and Dighton writes well. When I finished, I did what I usually do when I have an interest in something and went and looked at the author's social media. Whereupon I discovered that Dighton has vocally expressed ideas about transgender people and endorsed the ideas of others about transgender people that I found alarming and in conflict with my principles. I can't support an author who seeks to undermine the rights, safety, and existence of a whole group of people. And therefore, there's no, there's no work, no commissions, yeah. no editorial. This thing did not happen. Um, and I should say, for anyone who doesn't know, like, I'm, I'm a writer, so you know, not, not being able to write stuff is quite financially problematic. <laughs> so, so that's actually someone saying, I like your work, yeah. but I won't have anything to do with it because of your opinions. Right, and obviously, um, like worth emphasising that the work in question is is nothing to do with my feminism, and also worth emphasising that I'm absolutely not against the rights existence. And um, what was the third part of that 
protect, you know, blood well, under safety, safety. Absolutely not, you know, absolutely not against those things, and a very strong supporter of those things for trans people. But I am a feminist, and I think sex exists and is important and needs to be maintained as a distinction where relevant. Um, uh, this is, you know, for whatever reason, a highly contentious, as Jess knows, a highly contentious position to hold. Um, and I think it's a highly, um, un well, for all three of us, I think we've kind of stumbled into positions that are untenable within the arts and culture space to a certain extent. So, um, like, I get um, endless emails from... Um, publishers, publicity departments. And over the last few years, there's been like a gradual sneaking up of the pronouns in the signature. And you kind of see the first one, and you're just like, oh. <laughs> and, over, and it's bit, you know more or less universal now. So it's kind of notable to um, get an email from someone who works in publishing that doesn't include the pronouns in the signature. Um, which is absolutely fine as a personal individual choice for these people. It's something, you know, if it's something that somebody finds meaningful to share through their professional um, persona, then absolutely fully support them doing it. But the um, kind of the rise of it and the universality of it kind of suggests um, a sort of um, creeping and fear-driven movement towards respecting a certain, um, essentially manners, really, rather than a political position, really seeing it as something that you do as a matter of etiquette rather than something you do because you sincerely believe that mm. your gender identity needs to be expressed to everybody who reads the end of your emails. So do you, because the, the mechanisms are so interesting here, and I, we heard a little bit from both of these guys about who within these organisations mm. are the activists? Do you, yeah. Is it your feeling within publishing that it's this kind of slightly more junior group within the industry, or do you think it goes all the way mm. right up to the top? I mean, I think it depends from publisher to publisher. Mm. Like, I had a very um, fascinating direct message exchange with a person who runs a small press, an independent small press. Um, who got in touch to tell me that I shouldn't be allowed to write for some of the people who I write for. And if I do write for them, they should be allowed to tell me what my tweets say. And I was like, hold up. <laughs> like, this is a, you know, a mad and totalitarian thing for you to think as a publisher. But from their perspective, this publisher didn't see that that was a particularly mad and totalitarian position to hold. Her belief was that she was absolutely in the right and her ideas about gender identity were the only beliefs that were consonant with art and culture. And the position that I hold is an outcast position that should be, you know, unsupported. Um, yeah, and not only silenced, but I personally, as a person who um, believes that sex exists and is important in many situations, should be not allowed to write um, in you know certainly outlets that she see that she not saw herself. That's the best. Yeah. Yes. So again, I've got to come back with the same mm. sort of argument because I, th I think a lot often that's what you hear. Uh, there's this sort of almost like a meme or people mm. go around saying, "Oh, I've been cancelled," yeah. uh, and then they get a huge book deal or they, be yeah. you know, you know, you haven't really been cancelled. You are, I you are, you're here. You're, you're you're published. Do you think? What do you say to people who say, "Well, all these people who are complaining about being not having free speech are still on the telly and in 
newspapers? So. I would say that I am like fortunate to have editorial contacts who supported me and to be able to write widely and freely about lots of topics that interest me. Um, but there are places that, um, you know, places that I would, at an earlier stage of my career, like I would have loved to write for and I would see very much as like a natural fit for me as a writer that are um, you know like essentially inhospitable to me because I hold what's considered an unacceptable position um, and I think like um, the thing about there are two things about cancellation one is that it's insidious there's lots of stuff that you don't see every once in a while someone will you know as with jess just you know send you the email that says oh we've pulled your patches because we got what was it eight complaints <laughs> a rousing eight complaints the public had spoken and yeah. the flower patches had been removed mm. or in winston's case it happened very publicly so everything was visible and um but a lot of the time it's back channel stuff it's people talking to people and saying you know i'm not sure or people just having the general feeling that if they associate with you in any way it will make them toxic and it affects your psychology as well i thought it was really interesting that both of you talked about um, the responsibility you felt to friends and people who you work with. Um, so like one of the things that um, one of the ways in which my behavior has changed over the last few years is that I won't engage with my friends on social media. So if there's someone who is like, you know, a quote unquote civilian um, who follows me on Twitter, a bit of me is just like, oh no, <laughs> like you don't know what you've let yourself in for because like the cost of engaging with me in my public profile mm -hmm. is that somebody who has absolutely like no relationship or association with the stuff I think can be vulnerable to trolling and that makes me feel terrible it makes me mm. feel um, guilty and responsible and it makes you feel um, vulnerable and fragile as a person because ostracism is basically like it's the worst thing that can happen to a human being right humans can live in you know like sub-zero temperatures in the desert underground on the moon all these things but what humans can't do is survive on their own and as soon as you're ostracized um, it really does trigger a cascade of like very um, frightening emotions, which I, you don't want to talk about because you've shown your weakness and that's what the people who are attacking you want to see anyway. You know, like there's no compassion for the cancelled. Mm. You're there to be barracked and seen to suffer and anything that happens mm. to you is judged as deserved. Mm. So let me just come back to this and let's see if we can kind of look a bit future facing for a moment. Um, I actually found the interview we did um, quite heartening and quite striking because here was someone who is obviously not conservative, especially. Um, you know, you are. <laughs> yeah. You you express yourself very freely, and you you didn't seem to be frightened by it. And it, I suddenly thought, maybe this is the future where it actually becomes a bit kind of punk, and a bit sort of cool to actually stand up to some of this stuff because it's been amazing how that hasn't yet happened. I, I, do you think you are part of a new sort I, of I, I, group? I can only hope, but I think my uh, strength has always been that I am just before the generation that didn't live online all the time. I've got a really solid like social personal bubble, all my close friends, my husband, my family, they're all very 
super supportive from day one. They knew what I was in for. They knew what I was going to do. They were obviously horrified for me, <laughs> but they knew they can't stop me anyway. And and so I did that. And that's why uh, um, I still stick to my guns. I've never apologized because there's nothing to apologize for. I thought this through. Uh, so again, like I said, different different scenario in, in that respect. I, I knew I was doing that. And I hope, I mean, I'm getting lots and lots and lots of emails from people saying that that gave them strength and that gave them more sort of, you know, the fact that I just don't back down. I was like, if you think, you know, if you stick to the truth, then you don't have to worry about it. I don't have to worry about, I don't have to prepare for anything. I know what I think. I know what I know. And if someone presents me with new evidence, I'm happy to consider that, but that hasn't happened. And I've always seeked uh, the conversation also hasn't happened. So I hope, I really hope that it gets people more to go, okay, well, there is a, there's a life after mm. being ostracized. But do you think, yeah. I guess, I, I also mean, do you think it, it, it is kind of genuinely countercultural in a way? Well, it is, it clearly is. So the, I mean, it completely is, yeah. So the, the, the artists yeah. traditionally have been, you know, whether it's the Impressionists or the 60s musicians yeah. or whatever, they are pushing back against whatever the establishment endorses. And what we haven't yet seen is any group really within yeah. the arts saying, okay, well, actually, some of this, these ideas we now think it's kind of artistic and countercultural to go against. Do you, do you think that might happen? I, I hope. I mean, it, there's deafening silence at the moment. Like, from art, I mean, well, there was this. one... No, I know, but like, it's in the visual art, I can only speak for, you know... Uh, the, there was one Royal Academian who got in touch with me personally to say that he was absolutely horrified about what happened. One. And, you know, most people were just too scared. They're too scared to be in the hot seat, so to speak. So they're too scared. So all I can hope is that me just staying in the hot seat and going, well, whatever, just, mm -hmm. you know, give me the fans. <laughs> like, that it's going to encourage them. But no, I mean, so far it's been quite silent, you know. Winston, you haven't been silent. Um, what do you think? hope? I mean, you, you got messages from thousands of people after your long piece and your resignation. Some of them were within the creative industries. Yeah. Do I you think something might be happening? I think that there... I certainly got some messages from the creative people in creative industries, other musicians. Um, I supportive messages. Supportive messages, um, and uh, I, a lot from society at large, um, more so than uh, I. I'm not totally convinced that the, the let's say the music industry or the arts are uh, like people feeling silenced. I think that actually the majority of people are. Um, I think it's a. I think these topics, whatever, are actually more a minority opinion still. So I don't think it's people. Uh, the way I think I've been thinking about it is, if you look at the personality traits, um, uh, the five personality traits, and openness is the one that correlates to being artistic, and it also correlates to being having certain certain political dispositions. So I think that actually, um, liberal, left, yeah, left liberal. I think so. Um, although that, not necessarily, but yes, I think so. Um, and so I don't, th I'm not totally convinced it's a majority or there's like a quiet majority within the, within the arts. Um, but I do think that those people, I might be wrong, I don't know, I have, but uh, certainly people with dissenting voices, um, it's it's costly to speak out. If you if you work in Hollywood, everything is the gatekeepers. So if you're an actor or an actress, uh, yeah, you if you want to get to an audience, you have to get through producers, directors, uh, finances, 
it's all gatekeepers. In in music industry, it's like half gatekeepers. Um, I don't. If you take an example like Morrissey, who, in my opinion, has expressed opinions beyond the pale, like support of um, for Britain, which is like anti-Islam, Islamic, uh, anti-Muslim party, um, and he got dropped from his label. I think this year or last year. So that's the gatekeeper for him. But as far as I n understand, he, he can still sell tickets. People want to see it. Um. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Uh, is that not true of you as well? I mean, was it was? Do you feel like the majority of Mumford and Sons fans well, were upset, or was it the think, gatekeepers in your case? I think that there are other musicians who uh, uh, were uh, critical of me, um, uh, and very rude, and libelously so. Um, and um, uh, like I said, radio sh uh, stations, and there were there's definitely repercussions for the band. So. That's why I felt it was unfair for them to suffer as a consequence of of what I, what I said. So you feel like actually the, these gatekeepers you talk about, so mm. they're bookers who would put you on the radio or people who would get you a front cover of Rolling Stone magazine or whatever. That well, the music, the music press is another thing, which uh, another good example, because I think that they're, uh, they're an important example of gatekeepers because that's a good way to get to a big audience when you've got a new album or whatever you're trying to... Um, get it out there. and th they uh, are almost entirely pretty left and um, so whenever 
I'm going to get interviewed by music press again, or if I'd stayed with the band, this story would come up and it would be a negative story. So it's like, it, that's also unfair for the band, for them to have to suffer that um, because of my, because of what, something so I think. So this sort of gatekeeper class uh, exerts a huge amount of power then. Mm -hmm. um, what can be done about it, do you think? Even if it's only a minority of people in the creative industries who want to feel free to think differently, do you need? Do we need to be looking at alternative institutions and alternative music magazines and publications? I mean, how can you get past this, Unheard. gatekeepers? Yeah, <laughs> well, we're here. <laughs> <laughs> Start doing album reviews. Um, I mean, do you think that's what it's going to take? I want to. I want to try and get to the, the sense of what we can do about it. How can that be overcome? Uh, otherwise, you're just people like you. Next time it happens, you'll just have to quit. The next person will have to quit and they'll have to be silenced. Do you think it's a question of waiting decades until moods changes or do you think anything can be done sooner? I, do, I don't know the answer to that question. Sarah, let me, let me throw that one out. <laughs> Let's have a plan of action. Um, I think um, I feel often like we're in a sort of slightly weird situation. We're in a kind of um, two-speed society where it comes to, um, you know, like essentially like baseline values of free speech and um, discussion where, you know, I feel like there are institutions, I say unheard is one of them. There are other places I write for that I feel the same about that have a very strong commitment to pursuing what's interesting and to um, like, relating the truth and to um, like supporting different people's voices in um, to you know create a kind of um, you know discursive environment which is a very university thing to say and I should be over saying that kind of thing at this point in my life but you know what I mean um, and then there are other institutions um, where you kind of book it into, um, I would say, <laughs> um, you know, there are, um, you know, well, for example, I'll pick on this one because I actually, I'm never going to work for them again. But for example, um, um, a couple of years ago, the stage, so like the industry magazine of theatre, um, decided that it was going to do um, a commissioned two columns about the like the vexed questions of what the theatres do about toilets. So lots of theatres had been converting their toilets to universally um, gender neutral. In my opinion, this is um, for very boring um, toilet provision reasons. This is a very bad idea and it doesn't work. And I will. That's a, a, another event that no one wants to come to. Um, <laughs> um, so I did the this is a very bad idea column and another writer did the this is a great idea, yay, column. Um, and so that went out um, and the stage um, then received a bunch of backlash for having hosted the debate and then pulled the column without without discussing it with me in advance. And a bit of me was um, like, I was both angry, but also like, you know, like, I can't believe this. Like, this is this is such a weird way to behave. And so I found out the editor and I swore at him for about 15 minutes and he was very gracious about taking it and I'll never write for them again, so that's fine. Um, but it feels like you've kind of, you know, like, skipped the tracks and ended up in this kind of different reality where this where that's a fine thing to do. And you go like, but, but this, is, this isn't what you do. Like, this... Um, so I think there is um, a real corrosion of... Um, 
values of, not only values around free speech, but also values of um, treating individuals with like a certain level of, I mean, courtesy is, sounds like a terribly mealy mouth thing, but I think it's very important to have a commitment that you can disagree with somebody without wanting to like obliterate their career, their family, their financial security and every relationship that they've ever had. I mean, I feel like you can be mad at somebody but not have to actually try and destroy their life. Whereas, you know, as you both know, like the there is the behaviour of online communities as a whole kind of rushes to that kind of like, you know, I'm going to eat your soul and like suck on your marrow, which is like, okay, this is not what I got into this business for, cool. Um, so I think um, you have to be um, protective of the baseline values, which doesn't mean compromising on your principles. It doesn't mean supporting what is actually unsupportable. But the thing I found really interesting is there are a lot of people who I, I feel that I agree with politically on issues of like um, economic policy or taxation or um, social policy in lots and lots of ways. Mm. But at bottom, if, if somebody doesn't have a commitment to like very boring baseline liberal values of you should have a space for yeah which is, right and Durant. which are you know which sound enormously dull to talk mm. about but these are really important things and without them you don't have a functioning society and i think you have to identify them and protect them and you know like people are not good like people don't want to run around getting themselves set on fire in mm. where you know most people keep their head down for a quiet life i'm going to bring in our online audience uh, we have that's you. I can see you in my head. I can't actually see you, but I know you're there. We have Freya here who has been looking at some of the questions. Um, what are they asking? Yeah, so picking up on that idea of what can be done, uh, we've got one attendee who is asking, what can members of the general public do to support the view of these three people and help them to hit back? And um, we've got another attendee asking, is there anything helpful that politicians can do by mission or commission? And is anyone getting it right at the moment or very obviously wrong? So what, what, what would you like to see people do? Obviously buy patches, which is <laughs> hopefully that, is, that has started to happen. What, what can ordinary people do? Does anyone have a, a thought on that um, to try and change this? I would um, hope, and maybe this is too abstract of a thing, I would really um, like for people to support the idea of debate and discussion and plurality rather than just individual positions. It's like, I don't feel like you should agree with me that sex exists and is real. You shouldn't have, I mean, you should, because that's obviously true, but you shouldn't have to <laughs> agree with me about that to think that I don't deserve to have my you know, life destroyed and I don't deserve to yeah. be prevented from writing about completely other subjects. Um, in, in the music world, for example, I mean, if you've got, there are lots of people out there who will have seen what you've done, Winston, and be quite inspired by it. There will be lots of people, no doubt, who will be disagreeing with you as well. But to those people who are want to support you and want to register that, what what can they do? I don't think for people in the music industry, my story is particularly inspiring because it doesn't well so far. It might get better, <laughs> um, uh, but um, I mean certainly. If, if, if there are other artists in hot water, um, uh, like Jess has been, and uh, it's amazing to hear that so many people have been um, commissioning your work and ordering your um, stuff online, which is brilliant. I mean, that's a great, a great way. Um, so they can vote with their wallet? I suppose so, yeah. Um, 
Will you be doing more music? I, I'd like to, yeah. I don't know what, how... Mm. Uh, I, I certainly hope so, yeah. So that would be one way? Yeah. I've got to write good music, though. <laughs> <laughs> it's let's, bad. Let's get some input from our audience. Um, I'm going to start with um, Nina here on the front row. Thanks for all of your... Um presentations or talks and especially I think it's really important to hear about the personal aspect and I, I really agreed with Sarah's point about ostracism um, being one of the worst if not the worst things that human beings can experience and I think um, to rehumanize all of these questions goes along with the call for liberal debate and the commitment to these sorts of principles where we can disagree with each other without wanting to um, you know ruin everyone's life and I suppose just thinking forward because I think this sort of um, tactic, these series of tactics which you've heard about have been going on for a little while and I think more and more people are becoming aware of them and so even though there's lots of institutional capture, particularly in terms of uh, publishers and the art world is particularly flimsy and faddish and apt to go along with um, the views of actually what is a very, very small minority of people and I think we have to be very clear about the character types of people who are doing this kind of behaviour. Um, a lot of people who are very sadistic, extremely narcissistic. Um, we could name some of the people and I'm sure <laughs> I'm <not busy>. um, <laughs> there's enough legal cases going on at the moment but um you know like we have to remember that most people don't behave like this you know the vast majority of people even if they disagree with you are not going to do this and i think this thought alone about our sort of commitment to shared humanity um is is a sense of courage like should give us courage right when we meet people in ordinary life they don't behave like this they don't immediately ring up your employer if you still have one <laughs> Um, to to try and get you to lose your job. So I think, you know, and, and the more this happens, the more you're able to think freely, you know, and I've been cancelled multiple times, um, the more kind of uh, strength of character you develop, I think. And you really start to understand who your friends are, for example. You understand what it means to use language in a particular way. You know, words start to mean things again and reality floods back in. And I think reality will win. And I think half the reason this very small number of very sadistic people are using these tactics is because they know that they can't argue their case. You know, that this is all they have is violent threats and economic sanctions and social ostracism. And they will lose. That was the question. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a, a question for Jess. Um, how important and helpful did you think that the judgment for Maya Forstater that was roughly the same time as the reversal of the Royal Academy's position so that now it is okay to, to believe that sex matters and it is worthy of respect in a democratic society. How much do you feel that helped your position with the Academy? I think it put a good amount of pressure on, but having spoken to lawyers, <laughs> because I wasn't employed by them, so it would have only marginally helped my position in that sense. I think the public pressure was so much more helpful because if, you, if you're not employed, if you're just a supplier, the same doesn't necessarily count, but the momentum that the judgment got certainly, I think, got people more um, brave to speak out publicly and go, this is not on. Like, this is, it goes to the ground of that judgment. But if it would have come to the court of law, I, it wouldn't have helped so much, I don't think. Well, at least not from what I've learned from speaking to lawyers. <laughs> so, but yeah. Okay, let, let's get. Um, yeah. Hi, everyone. If you just say your name as well, so we. Yes, can. my name is Itamar. And uh, thank you, everyone, um, for the revealing. I think it was very moving as well. 
Um, my question is in relation to what can be done. Um, and, and I need a little bit of context just before my question. I, I'm a psychologist and I'm working mostly with children, adolescents and young adults. When they speak, and believe me, they do speak, um, it's very clear that they associate very clearly between speech and violence. And right now, with social media growing and, and a lot of financial, some sort of incentive in the background of those who, maybe the gatekeeper that you talked about before, um, they are the one now who decide what consider violence and what consider a debate. And I'm just wondering if each one of you, via your um, avenue of art, can maybe, or maybe all of us, should shift our focus toward the young generation who increasingly becoming more and more important in where um, debate is going to be, how we are going to see debate in the future, and um, basically, yeah. That so do you, mean, do you mean that um, the young people you work with are, are not tolerant to having people disagree with them? They, they find it? They honestly, and I can really speak that I can see honesty in there. Um, they've been receiving a message that speech is violence and sometimes um, even silence is violence. We, we saw that quite clearly. Um, there is a genuine belief that it's, and one, one child actually told me, imagine that uh, you are going down the street and you see um, someone hitting another person, right? And they said the first thing that you want to do is to take the aggressor, what it looks like, and, and get them out of the picture. And after that, you sit down and consider it. They really see speech as physical violence. Mm. And this is such, I think, a, a crucial point for us to address if we are looking for the future. Just wondering what are your views about that? It's actually a little bit similar to what you were saying, Winston, when you said it's not a silent majority. Actually, a lot of the people are actually in favour of this. I mean, that's that's a kind of stark it's reality that needs to be addressed. I shook her head when I made that point. But, mm. but like, I think within the arts, it's a minority, but in society, it's maybe a majority. Mm. But, but what, <laughs> if, what, if the, what if this point about young people is true? I mean, it definitely feels in these kind of discussions about uh, sort of liberal ideals, t tolerating dissent, it tends to be older, you know, early middle-aged and above who are enthusiastic about, <laughs> I'm not putting, not putting any view in the, this category, but if you did a, a sort of YouGov poll on it, well, we've seen lots of polls mm. that show that these kind of ideals are not especially fashionable or popular among the youngest people. What can then be done if, if that's true, that actually that sort of quite delicate sense that it's okay to disagree is just disappearing in a whole generation. And they don't no longer think that's virtuous. They, don't, they no longer think that's morally important. <laughs> well, I've spoke, I've, I've been engaging with a lot of people through my Instagram and there's a lot of young people there as well who um, I think initially went in there to come and educate me. <laughs> Right. And then through sort of light, uh, taking the piss kind of levels of engagement, we often ended up having some sort of conversation uh, where, unbeknownst to them, someone actually engaged with them. So they were not used to that. And, and, and I found it striking the amount of times that people go, I don't really agree with you, but this and this and this you said is really interesting. And I was like, do you start any other conversation with anybody like that? And why? Mm. Because my husband doesn't agree with 50%, I say, 
I don't agree with most of the things I said last year. Not that extreme, but I think the really important thing, because I think it's true in the sense that young people um, feel this way, I've, I've seen it, I've heard it many times, is to stick to your guns and to speak about it and speak loud about it and be very clear about it and keep speaking up. Like, that is the only way because this stuff is seeping into the institutions, is seeping into the into the universities. And for years, people have been going on about, but it's just in the universities. I'm like, yeah, but they come out of the universities and they go into the job market and then people are too scared. That was the breakdown in the Royal Academy. The leadership had no clue. It was a breakdown in the in, in Soho Theatre. What you were saying that uh, people don't do that in real life, they do do that in real life. I've experienced that in real life because that's why I had to leave So Theatre. People who I knew were getting me out there. So the important thing is to speak up when you know what's right. Speak up, have the conversation, contact you know your politicians, speak to your friends in trust because we don't want to fester this idea of you can't speak anymore because that's Stasi. That's literally I can't even say to my friends because they might rat me out to my employer. I will lose my job. You need to speak and you need to be clear in your messaging, and that really gets through to young people. There's a A lot of people on my Instagram now, young people who, who would private message me and go, I can't say this, you know, like my friends would absolutely lynch me for saying this, but I completely agree. Great. Well, at least there's a generation where I'm getting through to somehow because I've never been horrible to anyone. I don't have, well, maybe I have horrible views. I don't know. But like, you know, the, 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 the main position has always stayed the same. And I think people respect that and they see it. And by people, I also mean young people, you know, like they, they see that. And for them, that's something, the amount of times that, that they thank me for just listening afterwards, like what, once we went through the motions of them trying to educate mm. me and then I educated them. But <laughs> does, that mean, But, does that mean that you do feel positive then? Because I mean, No, I feel, I feel positive. I feel positive, but I do think there's a massive amount of people within the arts who absolutely agree with my position, with your position, they won't say it. They will not say it because there's so much at stake. So many of the journalists that I spoke to said that, you know, they, they were glad that I was bubbling along and going everywhere and not caring about it because I don't have a massive pension fund to worry about, to lose. I didn't have a, a massive, uh, like, arts career or whatever. It didn't, it never really, like, to me, what matters is to stick to my guns, to, to mm. stick to what I believe. And that gets through to people. I think that gets through to people and to young people. So it's important to not but sort of waver. And that doesn't mean to, to not take in, like I said earlier, to not take a new conversation. Have the conversations. Mm. And most of the times when I'm trying to have the conversations, it really stops very quickly when, when you meet dogma. It doesn't go much further. And when people say speech is violence and I just keep calmly talking on and they realize that's a lot of nonsense, you, you do get through to them. I am hopeful. But then, you know, I've never been anything else, so. <laughs> Winston, what about you? There's almost two views emerging here, isn't there? Either it's this is a kind of generational shift that it's going to be very hard to roll back, where people basically don't think it's a good thing to tolerate people who disagree with them. Or there's the sort of just view, which is actually, you know, it's quite innate in people to, to warm up if you actually start talking to them and, and the kind of human impulses will prevail. Are you optimistic? I am optimistic about that, and I think that some of the dominance discourse now is so ludicrous that the younger generation below them will see that it's ludicrous. Um, but I wanted to challenge Nina, if I may. Was it <laughs> Nina? You said at the end uh, something like, they will not win. But I actually think that's part of the problem, because it's their ideas that will not win. And I think we should be careful to not 
personify or allow these ideas become attached to them as people and separate the two. Now, maybe that was a slip of the tongue and maybe not quite what you meant. But I think that's what I've been subjected to, is that people have can't separate my ideas from me. Mm. And so I don't... Yeah, I would... I think that's a... So do you feel that all those people who were trying to get you sacked from the band or whatever, you don't think they're bad people? Oh, well, when it comes to Antifa, I think a lot of them are mentally unwell. Um, and that's something, no, it's not it's something to laugh at, actually. I don't think that's worth laughing at. Well, I think, um, like, it's, sorry to bust in, but to support your point, I think it's a thing that is hard to, um, you had a great article from Tom Chivers on the site about this, but one of the things that's very hard to get a read on in online discourse are all the interpersonal cues that would normally tell you whether somebody is, you know, having a generally hard time or whether they're someone who is, you know, operating on a healthy and functional level. And it's true, like, there are many people whose, you know, tweets have, like, driven me into tears for weeks and then a couple of months later I've been like, wait <laughs> like that's not what a you know a healthy and happy person would do but you don't have the cues that let you read that so we almost need to be compassionate towards i think so the I, components yeah Sorry. nina nina power um yeah i Sorry. i let me be clear i think people can change their minds right i don't think people are you know the, the problem is in the, in the kind of post-christian aspect it's like there's no room for forgiveness and the problem mm. is that people are attacking us you know, act as if they are both judge and jury. Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> They're acting as if they, they have the right to judge others. And there is no atonement and forgiveness. And, and in fact, often if you apologise, it makes it a lot worse. And, I mean, to go back to Jess's point, I mean, yes, it's true. There are loads of people who I was very, very good friends with who now will not see me in person. Mm. They won't. They refuse to talk to me. And I've tried to be, you know, conciliatory and so on. So I... I what I mean is like the people I've met since then, I suppose, and like when you meet people randomly or averagely in an average sure. day, there is a level of human interaction in which the yeah. kind of thing that people try to do, you know, when they're trying to cancel you just doesn't operate. It just wouldn't mm -hmm. work, you know. I mean, mind you, I have been on panels where people have um, turned their back on me or like left the room when I've spoken or I've given talks with security guards and, you know, I mean, it, it's mental. I mean, this is like levels of human interaction that are just crazy and these people are acting like, you know, Stasi agents. They're like self-appointed, um, you know, state agents, although they're not even working for the state. Well, maybe. I mean, I think the other brief thing I really want to say, I'm sorry, <laughs> go on, is, you know, think about how this kind of surveillance culture is feeding into a broader political project, right? We're talking about culture wars, mm. but there's a way in which, you know, if we bring in a social credit system that, you know, views that are deemed to be hateful and the expansion of hate laws is also something like that we really have to worry about because if certain views, even though we think they're very reasonable, they're up for discussion, they're based in reality, you know, start to become absolutely prohibited, which is what's happening in Scotland and elsewhere, you know, then we're looking at a kind of very, very, very totalitarian type system and it will be brought in through the back door and it'll be brought in mm. through culture, first and foremost. And we have to be aware of how culture functions in the broader political um, scene. In one minute, we're going to get some more questions from the online audience. Uh, I just wanted to um, get you, Jess, to, to say this this point about the Stasi. Uh, you know, you come from East Germany. Um, you probably don't remember that much of the um, before the wall came down period. But, you know, this is uh, you, you actually felt that some of these mechanisms reminded you of East Germany. Yeah. And uh, and yeah, I was only six when the wall came down, but I grew up, you know, my whole family is on the east side of Berlin. And and though those things are little, 
they were just sort of like playfully part of my childhood. You know, you don't talk about watching Sesame Street because that's a West program. So, you, so, you know, you don't feel, you don't have the scope of understanding when you're a child. But, but I certainly remember it now that I can put it in context even more so. So this behavior to me, and it's not just the Stasi, go back further in Germany. We've got a really great history in terms of not seeing the clues, you know. And, and to me, it's like I'm looking around and I see people already too frightened to lose their job to speak up, to, to speak to their friends because they're worried they're being ostracized and, and say the wrong thing. We've seen all this a million times and people always think, oh, well, if I would have lived then, I would have said something. Well, truth is, that's not true. That's not true. When you're in the hot seat, and we're not even close in the hot seat when I look back in what happened in Germany. We're not even remotely in the hot seat. Like, we've been ostracized with, with our jobs. It's super uncomfortable. We don't have to worry for mm. our life just yet, you know? Uh, well, just yet, I'm saying. But you know what I mean? Like, you, you, you just don't know. You don't know what, how. Yeah. There's a very slippery slope uh, if we don't start talking about it now. Because people say this. I'm too afraid to speak up now, you know, because my, I could lose my job. And I'm like, where do you think it's going if nobody speaks up? Mm. It's going nowhere good, so we need to speak. So yeah, it's very reminiscent of that time, and mm. and it, it, yeah, it's important for people to speak. It's important to right. stick to it. That is a, a chilling message. Let's get uh, some questions from Freya and our online audience. Yeah, so we've had a few questions and comments about institutions and what they can do. So we've had Vicky Robinson saying that. Major issue is that institutions like the Royal Academy seem to keel over at the slightest criticism from people on social media. And why is this? Why are they so afraid of criticism? And then Mary saying that, do you think that apolitical institutions should have stances on issues like this or should they stay silent? And then we've also had um, quite a few questions about motives. So Mark Collard saying that there often seems to be a potential competition aspect to some of these attempted or actual cancellations. So the cancellation is being organized maybe by one of the cancellee's competitors. So there's a sort of ulterior motive. Mm -hmm. um, does I, anyone want to respond to one of those questions? Yeah, can I jump in on the institutional thing? Um, I think one really important thing that institutions ought to do is um, take responsibility for their own policy because, um, and like this is speaking specifically with related to the gender debate, one of the um, great issues that has kind of come out as a result of FOIs and um, internal inquiries that have been published recently is that a lot of institutions essentially outsource their thinking about how to deal with disagreement on gender issues to Stonewall. Um, we sign up for the Stonewall scheme, pay their subs, and then receive their like little rainbow stamp that said you are a good person, um, but didn't interrogate how the advice Stonewall was giving them um, interacted with their institutional values or even with the law itself. In some cases, Stonewall was giving advice that was counter to the law or misrepresentation of the law. Um, institutions have to take responsibility for themselves and they have to recognise what their mission is. For example, in the case of the RA, if your mission is to support culture and the arts, that's what you do. You don't have to have a position about, like, you know, is Portland being ruined by Antifa? You don't have to have a position about what should we do about toilets. You have to have a position that says our job is to support the arts mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that is what we do and we do it by containing disagreement and conversation about these things. Um, it makes me think a little bit also that money has a lot to do with this because we're talking about arts, but they're also 
have become increasingly run by businesses, these institutions. And the CEO just doesn't want the bother. So the, the minimal path, the path of least resistance, is the one that that person will take, uh, which will tend towards a more censorious approach because you kind of avoid risk. I actually wanted to bring in Winston. Like, Mumford & Sons, big business at this point. You know, it's, it's, we called it one of the biggest bands in the world. Lots of people are making lots of money out of Mumford & Sons. So in a way, I'm just wondering what your reflections are on that. That, that, that yes, this is a, a question about artistic integrity, but it's also that, that, that it's now has the color of big business. And so did you feel that, that actually that there were sort of financial interests that came to bear that were hard to resist? Oh, well, the decision was certainly made harder because I was giving up a lot of money, um, a ridiculous amount of money. Um, but there, uh, there, um, there are certainly a lot of people who work for the band, um, hundreds, and that's a lot of livelihoods. Um, whether it's good or bad for business, it's hard to tell. Um, I know that streaming's gone up for the band. Um, oh, really? <laughs> but uh, I, do, I, I still concluded that the negativity of my association, was it, I'm not sure if it was a business decision or I, more that, it, I mean, when you're trying to sell a record, the last thing they're gonna wanna talk about is this stuff. So, mm. or, and sell's probably the wrong word because it's, it's not just, you're creating, it might be a big business, but it's you pour yourself into it, you bleed those songs out. And, and uh, so it's not just a business, it's... I guess what I'm asking is if you're, you're attached to your fellow bandmates or you were, they are then attached to these hundreds of people who subsist off their success. Once you become a big business, it's harder to have, to take risks and express yourself for the reasons you talk about. I wonder whether that's something to do with it. There's a sort of scale problem and a, you know, if, you're, if you start a new band or to be a solo performer, you'll be much more at liberty to say what you like because there won't be that. I actually think that those smaller mid-range artists um, have a much harder time of it because they need the goodwill of the gatekeepers, as we described earlier, to get up to a certain level. So that's why you can have Kanye saying whatever he wants. He's kind of untouchable. Well, Morrissey, I thought was an example until I learned he got dropped by his uh, label. Um, but there's, there's a sort of, Nick Cave is another artist who uh, might be the only other musician who's criticized Antifa apart from myself. And as far as I understand, I don't think he's had any pushback, but he did it in a different way. And, um, Mm. And there's a brand issue as well, like, you know, you're Nick Cave, you're the Prince of Darkness, and you're Mark Sons, <laughs> you're not. So it's... Mark Sons? I'm sorry, I'm sorry to break it to you. I mean, to some people, yes, but... Oh. Um. Now. <laughs> Let's take one more round from Freya, and then we're going to um, see if anyone else wants to contribute for the audience, then we're going to wrap up. What, what else have we got online? So quite a, quite a big issue has come up a couple of times. So one um, attendee said that the very issue at the heart of all of this is what do the panellists actually believe that art is for? You know, you've spoken quite a lot about truth. Um, how do artists um, serve society? And slightly linked to that was one um, attendee picking up on the fact that there's quite a big delay, especially for you, Jess, between when you wrote the blog and when you're actually kind of cancelled. 
And um, she was wondering if that affected your work, having that kind of hanging over you, and whether it kind of prevented you from creating the art that you wanted to create. So can this be stimulating to art in any way? Or is this, how does this kind of dovetail with the process of creating art? Uh, let me ask you, Winston, do you feel like you could take inspiration from this experience oh. in a future <laughs> artistic project. I mean, the questions yeah. were whether, how does this connect with art? What is art for? You quoted Solzhenitsyn in your piece. There is, a, it sounds like you've had a kind of I, reckoning I, about yeah. truth. For sure, the whole experience uh, were, has already brought out uh, song ideas and um, maybe prose writing. And uh, it's definitely been, you know, maybe no one will hear the songs or, or, or read whatever I write, but it's definitely, been inspiring creatively, for sure. Has it changed what you believe in any way? I um, was probably, bef uh, I, I was quite, uh, before the experience, I would say I was quite against wokeism. And although I am still against wokeism, I'm also now more against anti-woke, capital A, anti-wokeism, in a way um, that I wasn't before, because I, I see it as, uh, and I, 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 perhaps because the apology, I then got the anti-woke that came after you. Came after me, and and I recognised that they were behaving exactly as the woke mob, quote unquote woke mob, um, and uh, and you know they are the thesis and antithesis. But I'm more interested in the synthesis in the middle ground, and I I think that um, uh, I'm changed in in that I'm I'm now quite. Um, C cynical about that movement more than I was before. Does anyone else? Yes, got lots of hands up. Um, I'm going to come to you in a moment. Let's go to the back. Um, yes, um, Mo, I, we, we met sure. just before I'll the event. I'll make it um, quite quick. So, given the experience that the three of you have had with um, social media mobs and the hate you've experienced online, to what extent do you think their institutions and to some extent people should just disengage in social media and not listen to what is a very vocal minority um, coming at you that wouldn't have the platform that they did before social media? Like they might disagree with the column and just write to the editor, but they wouldn't be able to form these gangs and mm. witch hunt people. So what extent do you think it's no longer worth it listening to people as much online as we do? Okay, should we get offline? Sir, you uh, here in the front row, you have yes. a... Yes. Um, I mean, I, I think there's, there's probably something to be said for the view that the whole of liberalism keeps having to ro revolve around the question of how much intolerance can we tolerate? Morrissey? Trump? Um, and um, I wonder how you might want to answer the question. It may be that your, your comportment this evening has already answered this question. But how can we make tolerance seem more courageous and admirable? Okay, we, uh, we've, we are nearly running out of time, so I'm, I'm going to do a bit of a sweep. Um, we've got a question there about whether how much we can solve this by getting off social media and, and not involving it. Um, how much can tolerance be evangelized? Um, give us a concluding thought from from maybe from those questions or maybe what we've been talking about earlier, to send us off on our journey homeward with feeling the right thing. Starting with you, Jess. <laughs> uh, I mean, I keep 
saying the same thing over and over. I think we need to portray that ourselves, like the, the tolerance level. We need to act in a way that we want other people to act. I don't think people will stop listening to social media, unfortunately, anywhere soon, anytime soon. So I think we need to just be that good example. Uh, yeah, and, and inspire people in that way. And I think, I, I think it makes a difference. Winston. Social media is a necessary evil for artists and businesses alike, so it's not going anywhere. But to this question, um, I think uh, um, rec remembering that we are all fallen, that we are all capable of fucking up, and um, distinguishing between words and actions, because words, they might appear intolerant, but they can be criticised, but that's very different from intolerant action. I think that's an important distinction to make, but specifically remembering that we are all fallen, I think. Sarah. Um, I think, I like the question about what is art for, um, and I think um, you can, good art only happens um, through acts of bravery, small bravery, you know, or large acts of bravery, but it is essentially, you know, you have to put yourself on the line, you have to be willing to be wrong, and you have to expose yourself to other people's views and reactions. And I think one of the problems with the kind of, you know, low-key volunteer Stasi totalitarianism is it's corrosive to bravery, and it, eats away at the all the stuff that makes people interesting makes people capable of saying you know terrible shameful shocking things in lyrics and novels and doing exciting thrilling stuff it makes people small c conservative in a way that is antithetical to art so i would just you know um i would hope for people to sort of rediscover the joy of being brave and rediscover the sort of the pleasure of We'd like acting in good faith and trusting other people sometimes. It's the best feeling. It's worth doing. Wow. Thank you so much. Thank you to our audience, thanks for coming in. Uh, thanks to the Secford. Um, thank you, Sarah Dighton, Winston Marshall, and Jester Wells. And thank you for tuning in uh, Unheard Membership. Um, this was really fascinating and hopefully maybe even the beginning of something. Uh, you know, there was a lot of question of what we can do. Well, maybe tonight we've done a little bit of it just as a small start. So I found that really inspiring. Um, this was an unheard live event and we will be back very soon with details of the next one. So thanks for joining. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.